0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, would you turn to Philippians chapter two, verses one through eleven? Philippians two, one through eleven. If you need a Bible, we'll have some ushers coming down, and uh, you can slip a hand up. Look at one in your hands. You can borrow it this morning. Keep it if you need it. Through the teaching uh, series that we're, called, that we're calling Discipled, um, we've been introduced to 10 indicators or characteristics of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what are the marks that would indicate that. And so far we've talked about uh, dependence on God through prayer and through the word. Um, I have to tell you, this last Wednesday at Bethel Kids on Wednesday night at Wednesday Connect Dinner, a mom came up to me and said, hey, I just need to tell you that my daughter at nighttime, when she goes to bed, she's been reading uh, the Word. And she asked her daughter, she said, was that a result of Pastor Andy challenging you to read at least one minute a day? And she said, yes. She, the mom said, the problem is that she's reading multiple minutes a day at night before she goes to bed. So kids, I have a secret for you. If you want to stay up later, just tell your mom and dad you wanna read the word, right? And so that was so cool uh, and so encouraging to hear. We've talked about regularly worshiping together. We've talked about displaying the fruit of the spirit last week, the obedience to Christ in every area of life. Today's topic is regularly building relational community and it points us to another indicator of what it means to be a follower or disciple of Christ. When I use the the phrase relational community, I'm talking about the gathered church, but I'm also talking about like uh, discipleship communities, like life groups. and, And I trust and hope and pray that you're part of a life group and you're doing life with somebody and you're growing together. Paul, the author of this book, was under house arrest when he was writing the book to the Church of Philippi. And all throughout this book, if you were to go back and read the book of Philippians, you'd pick up on this theme, and that is to press on, to keep going, to to don't stop, no matter what. And God wants us to live in joy. This is the theme that you would pick up on. He experienced joy in every area of our life, no matter what is happening to us or around us. God's ultimate goal for us is this transformation in us. Relational community models Christ. Verse one and two as we start. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. So these, these first two verses, these first couple of verses really speak to um, our justification in that there is this assumption that's being made here based on who we are in Christ. A follower of Christ has been justified. Maybe you've heard that word. Maybe you haven't heard that word. But it means being made right with God. So he's not talking about, oh, a, a person going from bad to good. He's talking about literally a person going from death, spiritual death, to spiritual life a follower of Christ has been justified. Therefore, because of our new position, he's saying, in Christ, the truth is, then he goes on, he says, we ought to have encouragement from being united with Christ. If someone came to our church and they asked, "Um, what do all of you have in common? I hope and I pray that our answer would be that we have Christ in common. As we identify with Christ, so we identify with one another, right? Um, every church kind of has its own culture or characteristics so if you walk into a church you're like it probably doesn't take long to kind of figure out what is who is this church and what are they about and that sort of thing but there's a number of um, cultures like uh, one of the fastest growing ones is what they call hip and trendy so Um, And then there's the, you might walk into a church and go, oh, this is the rich church. This is where all the wealthy people go. And you could tell that right away. Or you might like, this is the self-righteous church. Look at all these people, you know, that, that think they have it all together. You might walk into a church and go, this is the old and stuffy church. Or you might go into a church and say, oh, it's us four and no more. Like this is a church that doesn't wanna grow. Or the church that says, oh, look at us. But if you were to ask me, like what characteristics, what would you want Bethel Church to be about? This is what I would say that we're Christ-centered, we're Holy Spirit-empowered, we're truth-centered, we're gospel preaching, we love God, we love others, and we serve the world. Like if I could just say, hey, that's who we are, that's the characteristic, that's the culture I so desire for this church. Do you have those people in your life that you just kinda click with because you have things in common? Hopefully, Hopefully you do. Maybe you have a hobby. Maybe you have an interest in common with somebody else. Personally, I really resonate with people and I find a deep connection with people who follow sports teams that find uh, ways to lose. But that's a whole different angle than what Paul's talking about. Besides, you know all about that, Um, many of you. We're the church of Jesus Christ. We have Christ in common. It's so easy to forget that I want to let you in on a little secret. The people in this church may not always agree, may not always see eye to eye. We may have different opinions and preferences, but as long as we can have those and we can engage in a healthy manner, it's okay. Because we have Christ in common. The church of Philippi and certainly Bethel Church experienced disagreement between people, right? But rather than magnify our differences and personal preferences, rather than blowing them way out of proportion, the challenge here is let's magnify our commonness in Christ. Let's allow the commonness we have in Christ unite us instead of allowing our differences to kind of keep dividing us, right? So this is what he's saying. He's saying because we have Christ in common, be encouraged. And then he goes on to three things. He says comfort from his love, the common experience of Christ's love unites believers. Since we have experienced firsthand the unconditional love of Christ, the challenge here is why don't we express unconditional love to one another? He goes on he says fellowship with the Spirit, individual fellowship with God through the Spirit, right, we have, and then the way that we interact through the Spirit because of the Spirit. And then he says tenderness and compassion. Those are two traits that are necessary to build unity among a, among a church since you have these things is what he's saying since this is who you are and he goes on in verse two I want you to be like-minded Paul was saying because of your common experience in Christ and your common fellowship you ought to be like-minded A healthy relational community will be marked by the attitude of Christ in the way that you treat one another is what he's saying. So I say that to us, right? We will be marked by the attitude of Christ in the way that we treat and care for one another. Be like-minded. What it does mean is that each believer has to have the mind of Christ. Better translated, when we think of that, it might be like this, the attitude of Christ. When 1,500-ish people who make up Bethel Church, or maybe 20 people or so in your life group, if you could think of it in that context, are unified and have the attitude of Christ, you know that there's been an act of God. That can only happen when we fix our eyes on Christ and all that we have in common through Christ, because unity turns heads. Unity is an open invitation for this explanation of the gospel, because you cannot manufacture that on your own. A unified church can withstand the enemy's attacks because a unified church locks arms with one another and says, let's go together towards Christ. There's no place for the enemy to get a foothold or a stronghold when we're locked together. So a relational community lives out of the inflow of Christ. Yesterday we were winterizing our camper. It's one of the things I dread every single year is getting the camper ready to put away for winter. And if you have a camper, you know this, but there, there's this bypass valve that you gotta use to get uh, antifreeze into the line so it doesn't freeze through the winter, freeze through the winter. And then, but to do that, you have to shut off all the valves, the cold water valve, the hot water valve, and there's another valve. It's the other valve that I always forget about. Turn the two valves on and I start pumping the antifreeze and it doesn't go anywhere until I remember, oh yeah, there's this third valve that I have to close. And then it works, right? You turn on the pump and it starts sucking all the antifreeze into the line so it doesn't freeze during the winter but I always forget about that other valve. The inflow of the scripture, the inflow of the Holy Spirit, the inflow of fellowship is only as good as when we close the valves to the other inflows in our life. Because as long as those other valves remain open, we're still allowing things into our life that will diminish the inflow of Christ, his word and the Holy Spirit. Secondly, relational community looks to others first. Verses three through five. This is pretty easy here. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's pretty easy, right? And so pride or the loss of humility is the root of every sin and every evil. It doesn't matter what sin it is. If you take enough of the wrapper off and if you look at it close enough, you will always find pride. So here's what I want you to do for a second. I want you to think of a sin. Maybe it's a sin that you're struggling with right now. Maybe it's a sin that you've struggled with in the past. Just kind of get that in mind for a second. And in your mind, I want you to kind of start to unwrap it because what we don't do often is we don't stop long enough to think, what's behind that sin? What is it, what's the pride that's behind the sin? because there's always pride behind it, okay? So identify the pride. So it could be, maybe as you start to unwrap that sin on the surface level, you start discovering, well, maybe the pride is pleasure. Maybe it's self-promotion. Maybe it's uh, false identity. Maybe it's to impress other people. But it's always there. C.J. Mahaney writes this, pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refused to acknowledge their dependence upon him. So Paul now begins to address some of the potential problems caused by this root of pride that can happen in a church. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, he says. The church was, was beginning to experience some challenges because of people's selfishness, attitudes, and actions, and this need for recognition. I'm gonna use a couple of football illustrations through this message, so hopefully um, you're okay with that. Um, uh, you, yeah. I am. I'm learning about this guy named Travis Kelke. Um, he plays for the uh, Kansas City Chiefs, and the Vikings actually play them today, so he he will actually be uh, in the stadium today, you know, playing. But it's been it's been fun to kind of get to know him and learn about him, this Travis Kelke, because obviously no one's ever heard of him before. Just one of the top uh, tight ends in the uh, history of the NFL. Um, since Taylor Swifty came along and made him so well known, right? The whole idea of vain conceit is to have this excessive favorable opinion of self. As you might imagine, selfish ambition and vain conceit both run cross grain. They run cross grain. And as you might imagine, they run cross grain when either or both of those things are prevalent in us, they're also prevalent in the church. We bring those things in and the church then becomes toxic and factions begin to form. So I'm gonna really stretch your thinking here for a minute. Let's just imagine this happening in a church. A group of people who develop an attitude of thinking that they know how to do things better and the right way. Just imagine that. It's kind of mind-blowing, I know. So rather than have Christ in common with the whole body, they find themselves having pride in common with a few. And for whatever reason, churches are notorious of having these small groups of people who insist on pride while foregoing the unity. I think because pride promises to satisfy the flesh, and we love to do that, right? We like to satisfy the flesh while humility satisfies our soul. So I'll just um, confess. I remember when I was a young youth pastor, um, just starting out, not here at Bethel, it's just when I was first starting out, I was, I don't know, 22 years old. Pretty soon I found myself disgruntled with so many things in the church, except the youth ministry that I led. I quickly became a part of the disunity. I was young and I thought I knew how to do ministry better and certainly the right way. The staff of the leadership, they, they seemed old to me and out of touch. If they would just listen to me, if they would just do ministry my way, after all, I was leading a youth ministry of 75 students in a church of 175 people how sad, how pathetic. I was to not consider and listen to the people that God had placed in my life and in my path. People who had years of experience and so much wisdom that I could glean. My pride was through the roof. Christ is not what I had in common. Pride is what I had in common. Me being sought out by others made me feel valued and important. It didn't take long for my heart to give away to pride. And what I found out is that pride always has a cost. It costs me, it costs the people around me, my relationships, my mentor, the church, all for what? For what? To be liked, to feel important, to have a voice, to get my way? Pride is like a magnet for people who desire and long for value outside of God. First part of verse three again, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In other words, do nothing that has only you or your agenda in mind. Run from every hint of you having to be right or or recognized. So a humble church is sustainable because its foundation is in Christ. A proud church crumbles because his foundation is in people. So getting ahead and getting recognition was never a part of the deal for Jesus. He was never concerned with people thinking highly of him or that people would consider him to be so talented or so great. He was more concerned with serving the mission that he was called to serve. But pride might sound like this. I am okay right where I'm at in my relationship with Christ. Or it could sound like this. I am bored with church and with God. I can't learn from this person. He has nothing to teach me. In fact, I think I could do better myself. I want people to recognize and appreciate my gifts and tell me that they do. I've been through enough now that I can show others the way. I'm the most humble person I know, right? Pride is when a person tends to criticize how everyone else is doing it. Pride results in a critical spirit. But not only in the church, we might say, they don't know how to raise their kids or they don't know how to manage money or their marriage is rocky because they don't do this or that. So pride is an attitude of thinking that you are better than others thinking that your kids are smarter or more disciplined or better looking or more popular. Pride is an attitude of thinking that I have a better job or nicer cars because I have earned it. Pride always leads to dependence on self while humility always leads to dependency on God. Second part of verse three, verse four. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus." So he's gonna teach us some things here. At first glance, it seems that maybe these couple of verses are encouraging this adoption of what what maybe you've heard as false humility, like this, this pretending that I'm humble as though we are to look and treat other people like they are of greater value than us, as though we are to say, oh, you're so much better than I. But how can this be? How how could that be if we're all created in the image of God? How can we say that that someone is better or greater than us if we share the same value in Christ? Essentially, what these two verses are saying is this. Rather than being so self-consumed realize who you are in Christ, and in doing so, allow your concern and consideration for others to precede your own concern for self. Which by the way, if someone were to ask me, hey, what is one thing you would say about marriage? I would say that, that's what I'd say. Allow your concern and consideration for others to precede your concern for self. So the phrase better than is not a suggestion of this superiority, but rather a consideration of concern. The ESV says it like this, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Um, Romans 12, three echoes this. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourself. So it's just another place in scripture that echoes the same. So it's a statement of attitude. That's what Paul's trying to get across. Not so much as to raise them up, to see another person and say, oh, you're better than I, and so we raise them up, but to lower yourself as you find yourself thinking less of yourself, you at the same time think greater of others. So rather than walking around attempting to see others as greater than you, see yourself for who you truly are in Christ, and in doing so, your interests will shift from self to others. Let me say it another way, and I think this way is probably just more plain English. We need to get over ourselves. Junior, Riley Leonard is a quarterback for Duke. Um, when, when I say Duke, maybe if you're in the sports world, you think basketball right away, right? Um, this is football. And yesterday they were going into a game, I was corrected after the first service, so I wanna say they were four and one, I thought they were five and oh going into the game yesterday, but they were four and one. Uh, and Riley's one of these guys, he's a strong believer, his family's are, uh, they're strong believers, and he was one of these guys that was brought up in a household, that was like, Riley, you can do no wrong, man. You're awesome. You're the best athlete we've. You're better than all your friends, man. You, you just, you're amazing, Riley. And so that was one of the things that he was raised with. And secondly, um, he wasn't recruited out of high school at all. Uh, He, in fact, he was a basketball player, but he ends up at Duke. He ends up as the quarterback and he's never been talked about he's never been promoted he's never been like you know uh, on ESPN and all of these things and then all of a sudden all of this attention is on him because he's having this tremendous success and so he works out a deal with his mom and he says mom here's what i need you to do before every game and i'm going to change the word you can look it up later before every game i want you to text me riley you stink In fact, he was in the middle of an interview on ESPN on game day, and his mom texted him in the middle of the interview because he was he was trying to talk about this. His mom says, "Riley, I'm watching the interview. I just want you to know you stink." And you know whether right or wrong, it's just kind of this funny thing that's taken off. They all wear wristbands, and you know, and so mom just texts him all the time. Says, "Riley," and he says, "I need that because I need to be reminded of who I am." Not who everybody else is making me out to be. He didn't want his head to just explode because he wasn't used to any of this. And so he was asking his mom, Would you help me stay humble? Would you help me to continue to work hard? Humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. Andrew Murray on humility. To regard others as better than ourselves means that we can look for the good in other people and we can actually point it out instead of only trying to look for the good in ourselves and wishing that somebody else would point it out. It also means as we look and listen to others' interests that we consider it more important than our own. It's kind of this selfless attitude. So the message to the Philippians and the message to you and to me is that if we really wanna be great, we have to go down we must learn to descend from this realm of pride to the realm of humility humility is not about what we want it's about being a servant to whatever god wants so it doesn't matter if you're the ceo of this major corporation and you, maybe you're well known or whether you're the person that, that empties the trash at this corporation the question really is is who is getting the glory It doesn't matter if I'm a pastor of a 20-member congregation or 2,000-member congregation. Neither of those make me great in God's eyes. What makes me great in God's eyes is to make sure that he gets the glory regardless of my earthly status or position, and the same is for you. Humility, it comes from a position. But it's not a position that we hold at our job. It's not a position that we hold in our family. It's a position before mighty God. Verse five, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So, number three, relational community invites humility. Follow along in verse six through 11. Who should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God and Father. That is not saying that every person will be a believer and a follower of Christ. That's just saying there will come a day that every person will bow at his great name. Every person will confess his great name. This passage of scripture is often referred to as the kenosis passage. It's it's the idea of self emptying of one's own will for the sake of God's, God's will. When he took on the nature of a servant, he set aside his ability to display himself as the God of all splendor, the God of all majesty, the God of all glory. If you could have seen Christ prior to him becoming a man here on this earth, we would better understand what he meant when he said that equality with God is not something that can be grasped. Let me say it another way. To empty himself meant that he set aside all his own self-interests in order to do the will of the Father. So Christ's humility was a willingness to set aside the comfort and the perfection of heaven to make himself nothing. He had the right to heaven, right? Yet he gave up his right to do the will of the Father. So it says, who being in very nature God. Everything God is, Christ is. He did not cease being God, but as verse seven says, made himself nothing, taking on the nature, of a servant he has always existed with God he is equal to God because he is God he gave up glory to gain glory for you and for me and this last phrase in verse 7 and the first in verse 8 being made in human likeness being found in appearance to man it's hard for us to get our mind around but the theological point being made here is that Christ looked just like other men so if he was walking in a group of men, you wouldn't go, oh, wow, he really stands out. That's got to be Jesus. You wouldn't think that at all. You might even not even know that he was there. Or you might think, okay, somebody said Jesus is a part of this group. Which one is he? Isaiah 53, 2 says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus is the epitome of humility. Just listen for a moment as I read a few statements Jesus made in the Gospel of John as we close. This is what Jesus said. John 5, 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. John 5.30, there's a theme here. By himself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself but the one who sent me. John 5.41, I do not accept glory from human beings. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of the one who sent me. John 7.16, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own, it comes from the one who sent me. John 7.28, then Jesus still teaching in the temple courts cried out, "'Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him.'" John eight twenty eight. so Jesus said, "'When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me.'" John eight thirty two. Jesus said to them, "'If God were your Father, you would love me, for I have come here from God.'" I have not come on my own, God sent me. This is Jesus saying these things. This is is God. Jesus himself is saying, there's nothing about me. It's all about him, my Father. Relational community, the gathered church, smaller gatherings within the church, believers in general, invites humility. We have so much to learn from the attitude of Christ. Let me leave you with this one thing. It's Romans 12, three again. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you, Romans 12, three. God, thank you for uh, your word and thank you for the truth of your word. And this is such a powerful passage of scripture because it teaches us about life, but it teaches us about Christ and who he was and who he is that he took on the form of a servant, which is just mind blowing that we can't even, we can't even grasp that. What is that like? And yet he modeled for us what true humility is, what relational community is, and what's required to be in a healthy relational community is humility. Because as we go down, we view people's interests ahead of our own. And we see people differently. Thank you, Jesus, for modeling that for us so perfectly. In Jesus' name, amen.